Welcome to the Words Matter podcast, the Course Health series. Welcome to another episode of the Words Matter podcast. I'm Oliver Thompson, and this is the third episode of the Course Health series, exploring the book, Rethinking Causality, Complexity and Evidence for the Unique Patient. And today I'm speaking again with Dr. Eleanor Rocker about Chapter 3, which is titled Probability for the Clinical Encounter. And together with Rani Lil Anyam and Samantha Copeland, Eleanor is one of the editors of the book. And Eleanor is an interdisciplinary researcher with background in pharmacy, biology and theory of science at the Norwegian University of Life Sciences. And she brings some of those insights into the conversation today in relation to probability. So in this episode, we talk about the different conceptions of probability, including frequentism and propensity theory, the latter of which is the form of probability that the Course Health book argues for. We talk about the different ways that probability features in the natural world compared to the social world. And we relate this to the current challenges of predicting behaviours of societies during the pandemic. We talk about where and how and in what form probability and probabilistic reasoning comes into our clinical practice and the importance of being aware of how we view probability in relation to making decisions with patients. We talk about the overlap in skills needed to develop an empathetic relationship and those skills needed to obtain causal evidence from knowing the individual patient as a person. And finally, we talk about the dilemma which at the heart of the Course Health Project which is making decisions about a person informed by evidence or knowledge which are not from that person, but in the form of theory, research evidence or previous clinical experience. So I really enjoyed talking to Eleanor. She held my hand both firmly and brilliantly through a challenging topic and we tried to clearly link probability to clinical practice. So with the entire Course Health series, This episode should provide an inviting doorway into her chapter three on probability. So I bring you Dr. Eleanor Rocker. Eleanor, welcome back to the podcast. Hi, Oliver. Thank you. So in this episode, we're going to talk about your chapter three, which is titled Probability for the Clinical Encounter. And... So I was thinking about this chapter uh, and this obviously this conversation before speaking. You'd hope that I would have thought about it, wouldn't you? <laughs> I, I, I would. I would, yes. A little bit. <laughs> yeah, if I turn up and said this, I have no idea what we're talking about. I've given it no thought, but I have given it some thought. I've given it, I've given it some extra thought, partly because, uh, as I mentioned, I've, the, the topic itself is, is quite complicated. But also I was thinking about whether I think in terms of probability in relation to my clinical practice and how to what um, extent probabilistic reasoning or probability comes into me being with a person in a clinic room. And so I've got my own thoughts, but I'd really like to to hear your thoughts mm-hmm. about why do clinicians have to think about probability or maybe they already are, but they don't know about it. Yes, exactly how you say. So 
I do think that the job of the clinician is all around thinking about probability in terms of probability and uncertainty. Uh, but it's not necessarily that the clinician thinks about that, uh, focuses uh, on that all the time. It's just part, it becomes part of the profession without necessarily, it gets so inbuilt in the profession without necessarily being aware of that sometimes. And uh, the basic reason is that uh, there's a di dilemma in the clinics, which is that you have to make a decision about a specific patient, a specific case, but you have to make th that decision by drawing from somewhere else, so either from uh, literature or some, from your experience from previous patients or your theory, etc. So every time you have to uh, draw a conclusion about uh, uh, something from somewhere else, then, of course, you are uh, in a margin of uncertainty because you don't know what's going to happen in this case. And, uh, and this is the case, especially in the clinics, because you're dealing with the uh, human beings uh, in their context and with a lot of layers going on that affect their condition. So there's the physical layer, there's the emotional layer, psychological, etc., but it's also something that is true in the natural sciences uh, in general, because every time we, we deal with life, it's difficult to standardize. So when we deal with physics or computer science, uh, it's easier to standardize. I'm told I'm not a physician or you know, a physics uh, computer science expert at all. Uh, I'm from the natural sciences. So I'm told it's easier to standardize experiments and so you, you can predict with much more certainty. Well, whenever you deal with natural sciences, you never say something for certain, but you, you, you have to say the margin of uncertainty and therefore probability, because probability is a way you have to qualify or quantify your uncertainty. It's a kind you give some kind of boundaries to it. It's a tool in order to find your ways in this uncertainty. You say what kind of uncertainties, or some, many like to say how much uncertainty, so you quantify it even. And when you talk about the natural sciences, are you, are you including the social sciences? I'm assuming you're not including the social sciences, or you are. I'm coming, my background is in the natural science, sciences. So I've been working uh, with, uh, with mouse models in the lab. So quite a standardized environment if you want, but, but even if, you know, from the clinical point of view, you think, oh, that's so standardized. It's not true because it's, you're still dealing with life and it's very difficult to standardize an experiment when you, when you deal with, uh, with life. So you still, you always have a margin, very big margin of uncertainty what's going to happen next time. But of course, compared with dealing with human beings, that's nothing, <laughs> right? So I'm trying to think about the people modeling for the vaccine and the pandemic and whether or not people wear masks and the behaviors of people in complex context dependent situations. But I guess I see clinical practice where you've got two people, two social beings interacting in a way and you just scale that up to a city or a town trying to trying to figure out how people socially distance or whether they go to the pub when they shouldn't go oh, to the yes. pub or whether they wear a mask or whether they buy a a sandwich so they can have a drink so they can go into the pub so those kind of those predicting behaviors of, of within the social world that is just another element of complexity i'm guessing compared to the natural sciences yes that's a very good observation there i guess that this pandemic showed us how uh, how these layers of complexity mix 
and mm. how difficult it is to make choices, not only because we've seen then the level up over the clinician, there's the level of the uh, the politicians. When you make choices for the community, how difficult it is. So many times I thought in the past months, I'm so happy I'm not the politician. Because, I mean, whatever you do, uh, you do something wrong in these situations of very high uncertainty. And uh, uh, not only because we don't know about the virus, but we don't know, as you say, how the community will interact. And even if you know what one person or one family one community does, you, you will not know how do they interact because the interaction is different from the sum of the parts, right? So you have this this problem. Hmm. So probability seems to be intrinsically related to uncertainty. And maybe if you could just tell us about the connection between the two. Yes. I think the best way to tell you this is to read the quote I have here in front of me. It's a quote by Stephen Tyerman. And I remember reading this as one of the first readings I made when I joined Cosheld, even before meeting Stephen, who is, I think he was a great writer. He had this disability to write things in such a way that got so crystal clear. And he wrote, clinical practice has a clinical dilemma. Clinical decisions are made about an individual suffering person, but informed from knowledge of suffering people in general. Knowledge is derived from similar clinical experiences of other individuals in different contexts. And this was this is at the core of uncertainty in the clinics, because you're thinking about this dichotomy between general and, and individual. So you're drawing information or uh, you're drawing conclusions about an individual from something else, general, you know be it a trial, be it uh, other patients, or uh, things you studied in medical school. Okay, so getting to to kind of imagining clinical practice and where probability might come into it, or probabilistic reasoning, any examples that you, that you think clinicians listening might might resonate with or, or be familiar with? Yeah, so you might think, what is there? to say about probability, uh, to write a chapter about that. But so the point is that what we're, uh, we're trying to communicate is not at all something very technical. We want just to show that when we say probability, we might mean different things. And so when you and I talk about probability with the same term, probability, we might think about two different things and then talk over each other because we don't, we don't say that. So what a lot of people talk about when they say probability, they talk about the frequentist view of probability. This means that if I have to predict what is going to happen next time, so in my patient, I'll do it by counting how many times or what happened in the previous patient. So let's say, let's make an example that outside the clinic, let's think it very simple, uh, very, you know, mechanistic (laughs) examples to take away all the rest, all the other levels of complexity. Let's think about a a truck is going to cross a bridge. And uh, for some reason, you know, that bridge is very old and the truck is very big. So you want to think how much are the probabilities that, you know, the bridge will break how many are the probabilities? What you do is you look at how many times a track that big crossed a bridge 
with similar in similar conditions, like same size, same time of construction, etc. And then you count how many times did the bridge break. And then you make a calculation and you 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 get a numeric, so a quantitative description of your probability that the bridge will break. So this is about saying something about the future by counting how many times things happened in the past. And this is, uh, this is the basics also of what we do when we base ourselves on clinical trials. So when we say that you have probability that a certain intervention will work in a patient based on some uh, clinical trials, this is exactly the principle. Okay. You count how many times this worked in similar conditions. And this is a type of probability that started in the 20s with the 1920s. This is a type of probability that started from uh, uh, games of chance. So, for example, coin tossing and card games, etc., where you have at least theoretically the possibility of infinite repetitions. And of course, with human beings, this is not possible. This is why uh, you need clinical trials, uh, you need sophisticated statistical designs in order to at least try to mime a kind of situation when you have a lot of repetition of the same uh, instance. I mean, you will not have always the same instance, but you can try to mime this situation. So in clinical practice, I'm drawing upon previous situations. So I've seen a hundred previous people with low back pain and I've got to think about, well, how similar are, is this patient in front of me to those previous a hundred? Yes. And, and see if there's any kind of patterns which, uh, which emerge or, or can recognize patterns within the patient I have. And then do I make some kind of probabilistic judgment or some prediction about how this patient will respond to my treatment given the similarities with the previous 100 episodes is that am i doing am i doing probability then yes this is in the frequencies from the frequencies point of view uh, you would go just with the numbers though so okay. uh, when you talk about looking for patterns you're already uh, connecting the dots in a way okay so there's no kind of dot connection with frequentism uh, no because when you think about uh, connecting the dots, that's something you uh, you make in your mind that you cannot really see. No, what you can really see are the dots. So what you would do probabilistically, you would uh, take your, uh, let's say, 100 patients you saw before and then look, at, uh, if, look for some parameters you can map. For instance, you can see, okay. uh, you can map age or uh, whatever, you know, Whatever you as an expert Location of, of lower pain back or, pain thing yeah, yeah. is important to map. And then you will see how many of these patients have the uh, maximum amount of uh, overlapping uh, parameters. And then you will count the success. And then from that, you will get okay. the number. This is a numerical view on probability. Okay. So you will say I have uh, 30% of uh, probability that it works here, given what happened before. But another way of thinking about probability that is it is rather used and also in clinical practice, I think, is the degree of belief you have. So if I say that I have 30 per, you have there's 30 percent probability of this uh, intervention working for you, that means that I'm 30 percent sure 
that this will work. So this is not a measure of a reality, but it's a measure of my knowledge. And this is what uh, you will get. Uh, this is what all this Bayesianism is about, if you heard about that. But this is uh, um, it's not an ontological, if, you, if people remember from the previous podcasts. Mm. It's epistemological view on probability. So it's, it's a giving a number to what I know, not, what, not to what there is. So it's going to strength your strength of belief. So if I, if I really think that this intervention will work on you, then I'm... Yes, based on whatever evidence you have. So the more evidence you have available, the, the stronger is your belief. But uh, you have to notice that in this type of probability, then uh, the word is deterministic. So if I knew everything, then I would, there's only one way things will go. The reason why my probability is 30% is just that I don't know everything there is to know. But mm. if I knew everything there, there is to know, then I would give you 100% certainty. So it, it, it presumes that there is 100%. So it presumes that you can, potentially you could know everything, or there is a determ- that's determinism, right? That there is a, a kind of final point or an ultimate truth. Yes, it presumes that given some initial conditions, the conditions you know now, there's only one way things can go. This is determinism. And what I measure is how much I know about that initial conditions and how much I know about, you know, how things could go. And this can never be 100%. No one says that I will ever know everything. It's just just that if I knew everything, then there would be only one answer. And that would be 100%. Mm. This is different from the third type of uh, understanding there is, which is a propensity view on probability, which is what we are trying to advocate for in the book. In the propensity view of probability, we think it's based on dispositions, so property of things and properties of things interacting, so properties of, of systems. As you might remember, a disposition is something that tends to manifest, but doesn't necessarily manifest. So, you know, I, I have disposition to get pregnant, but I don't necessarily, I, I won't necessarily get pregnant in the course of my life. So this is not a deterministic view of probability, it's the contrary. So given a certain initial set of initial conditions, there's many ways things could go. And then the measure of the probability is the measure of the propensity of the system, knowing the intrinsic properties of the components of the system and knowing how they interact. Then there's a certain probability in terms of propensity, the system has a certain propensity to give in in a certain direction. So if we go back to the track and the bridge, the propensity view would uh, uh, say, okay, what do I know about uh, bridges this type? How do they, uh, how do they, are they constructed? Why do they, you know, bear some kind of weight and, and, and then how much can they bear? And what do they know about the track? And what do I know about track and bridge interacting? So it's a knowledge about properties and about uh, uh, processes. So what you talked about earlier about your patient with lower back pain having some kind of pattern, some processes. So, okay. so you see that in this way, at least the type of propensity theory we advocate is a qualitative. So 
it's not much about giving you a number, but it's I give you an explanation, I give you a description, and I could say, you know, knowing uh, the if I'm a clinician, I could say knowing how this intervention works, uh, and knowing the processes going on in you and how you are and uh, how you uh, how I see you in this or we see that you are together in this uh, moment of your life, etc. This is how it could go. Yeah. It would seem much more aligned with clinical practice where clinicians are already put, as I said, I could have gave my position away by saying that I'm thinking in patterns most of the time with, with patients that you're drawing upon or you're building schema of previous patients and connecting the dots and trying to think about how does this patient compare to similar patients or previous patients I've seen in the past. But in order to answer that question, you've got to understand the properties of that person and also try to recall some of the properties yes. of the previous people that you saw and make some kind of, I guess, prediction or probability or, or, or some kind of sense about how the two compare so you can make some decision about how to proceed. Yes, you, 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 you used the keyword there. You said understand. Uh, so the understanding is key in this point, uh, in this view of probability, because you're trying to uh, not only look at uh, parameters and count, uh, so not you're, you're not just looking at uh, dots, but you're connecting the dots, as I say. So you, you're trying to understand mm. the processes underlying these parameters, uh, which is uh, what someone is scared about, because the point is that you cannot see this understanding. This is something that these are theories that you have to try to explain uh, what you actually can count. And that's, we say that you shouldn't be afraid of that because if without understanding, you cannot use the numbers properly either. So we say that, you know, even if you try to use only clinical trials, but you don't mm. you try not to use any understanding of any process, then you're not going to do a good job anyway. So you might as well embrace it. You might as well embrace that you need theory. You need to understand your staff properly, understand your patient especially mm. and in their context, rather than say, oh, well, I'm, I'm going to be exact, so I don't want to look at things that I cannot count. So. How how do we know that we assign or give the right propensity or the probability for a patient? Yeah, so let's say that that's the point. That's where it's very, very difficult. So it's difficult to uh, understand the propensities of a system and it's also difficult within the system to assign the right propensity to the right part of the system. Like, is this propensity more on the patient? Or is it this uh, propensity more of the treatment? If it's more a propensity of the, the patient, for instance, you could think that there's some kind of placebo effect working, then no matter what you do, it will or won't work, for instance. So let's say that uh, given that it's difficult to assign it, your uh, best chances are to study in depth and try to understand as much as possible the context of your patient. So deep knowledge, which is not what you get, at least, uh, you know, in Norway, when you get to your, uh, your your family doctor. I mean, and that's because of a lot of reasons, because organization, the system, and these poor doctors have to do so many things at the same time. But I mean, the, the result is that 
You don't get to know the situation in the context of the patient, the person talking to you. So, but if you really want to assign propensities, you need to do that. So your first thing is to know the, your patient or your context. And then the second is look at the body of knowledge there is, which doesn't only mean clinical trials. It means how do you, what is there out there to understand what's going on, understand your evidence. So what is the theory? What could be happening here? How do I connect the dots? My patient, her context, all the, you know, uh, trials and uh, evidence and uh, numbers I find, which of course you have to look at. It doesn't you know, propensity theory doesn't mean that you can, you're allowed to just go to your, uh, you know, clinics without doing your uh, research. Uh, quite the contrary. You need a lot of research, but also you need a lot of um, expertise. This expertise, like the, the capacity of uh, trying to understand processes, understand the evidence, evaluate. So what comes through with all of these conversations with you guys is this real focus on on kind of getting to know your your patient your person which sounds a bit cliche doesn't it I mean, everyone talks about that but i think what strikes me which is becoming so apparent is that it's often said oh you've got to know your patient you've got to listen to your patient but there's often very little theory underpinning that i mean there's ob- there's obviously good intention that it seems like it seems like a good thing to do to know the person who's suffering or trying to help but the cause health book and project really gives a theoretical rationale which underpins that based on philosophy of causation etc so it's more than just saying we should do it because it's a good thing and it probably it's probably a good thing but there's a much more much more thought uh given to it and much yeah. more effort to justify it as a as a as a practice yes yes we start we talk from the point of view of causal evidence so we think that the evidence coming from the context and the single case is uh, a necessary type of evidence if you want to understand causality. So it's not only about, you know, obviously listening to a, the patient because you have a human being in front of you, suffering human being in front of you, which is, of course, basics. And we hope that this is going to happen. But but we don't talk about empathy. I mean, of course, empathy is very important, like, but it's not what we talk about. Here we are talking about making a causal prediction. And what is very out of the box is thinking that this is a necessary evidence for causal predictions. So understanding uh, where, where the patient comes from. So pre- causal predictions from the single case. So everyone says that this is important to understand the context, but no one says that this is uh, uh, basics, and we think it comes before before evidence from other patients. Hmm. It's interesting. Yeah, you're right. You don't mention empathy, and empathy is obviously really a, a huge field. And but it just so happens that by the skill needed to understand your the the propensities or the, sorry the properties of your patient, the dispositions, i.e., listening or active listening, communicating. It just so happens that they're also features of empathy as well. It, it, it's, yes. it's handy that they're that they're both, um, yeah, they sit side by side. It turns out that you know, showing that you care about someone is 
beneficial in an, in an empathetic sense, but also from trying to understand causation and you know, why this person is where they are and the sorts of interventions and yes. treatments which will help them, it, it, it's valuable there too. It's true. So it's, uh, it's true, as you say, like the, the quality of being an empathic person are good also for a researcher from our point of view. So if you're a good researcher, you're very well off if you're if you have these qualities of empathy, etc. I had, um, I mean, I was working, uh, when I was working in the pharmacy, I had these cases that really, uh, I think they were amazing when uh, patients were coming to the pharmacy and asking for uh, the generic drug because they said they were feeling bad from a certain drug or the contrary. They, they were given the generic drug by the doctor and they were saying, no, actually I would like the original because I'm feeling dizzy, I'm feeling bad, I feel whatever from this. And um, the reaction of the pharmacist was uh, always, oh, no, 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 that's never, I've never heard of that. This, this is impossible because, you know, we know it's the same thing. It must be you and, uh, you know, you don't, don't think about that because then you get very anxious and then all this, uh, mm. this kind of advice not to be too anxious, but I mean, kind of invalid, invalidating, invalidating. And well, mm. but why would you, why would you start from the point of view that what the patient comes and tells you is, you know, some kind of anxiety driven thing? I mean, why don't you start from the point of view that this is very important evidence you have? It's the best evidence you have because these patients who come to you, they are not patients that are included in the, in the trials. I mean, Patients, for instance, who go to the pharmacy every day are older, elderly patients or uh, very sick people, you know, who need to go to the pharmacy every day. So these people are not in the trials. And yet when they come and tell, tell us something that happened to them when they get the drug, we say, oh, but no, I've never heard. No, no, it's not, it's not what I know about. And we know it's the same. And I know this doesn't happen. So this, you see how... There is this uh, kind of, it's not only about empathy, because then these, these pharmacists, they were trying to be empathic and say, no, but don't feel too anxious. And I mean, it's not that they didn't want to help. They wanted to help. But from the point of view of that, no, but what you say is not, you know, the evidence. I mean, I trust the evidence I have. So you see that there is a different focus when you change your focus on what uh, what is uh, important causal evidence and you know, what are these information that I read? Who, are, who took part to these trials? And what am I thinking? What is this uh, probability I'm uh, talking about? Am I basing myself on, you know, what happened before? Am I basing myself on trying to understand what's happening? Then also your way of looking at the patient, you know, researching what's happening and what, what counts as good mm. evidence changes. That's brilliant. I mean, so just imagining the solution to this dilemma, what would it be? A, a time machine or just infinite wisdom? <laughs> no, I don't think a time machine would uh, would uh, help either because where would you travel? I just quite like the idea of having a time machine. I don't think there's a way to... to probably a time machine because, you know, if now we could travel uh, 20 years uh, in the future... We would know so much more about uh, the COVID uh, virus. You th mm. think about HIV. Think about the first cases of HIV. I mean, uh, when these people started getting to the clinic sick with this very strange sickness, and 
they didn't understand what was about these patients. They started to think it was something about, you know, is it like that gay people have something? You know, they just were looking at stuff mm. and start trying to, you know, understand and, yeah, and think about what we know now. So probably mm. a time machine. So you want to... So it is a time machine, okay? Because then I thought we could, you could do something to a patient and then you could go ahead, see if it worked, see how they've responded. Okay, it didn't work. I'll go back to back in time, do it again, different intervention. It'll take a bit of time though. Yes. But, you know, you go back and forth as many times <laughs> you want. Anyway, we're off the topic. So, Eleanor, if you were going to summarise three key points for listeners, clinicians, or maybe researchers in relation to how how you would like or how cause health are advocating to think about probability, what would they be? Uh, it would be that, first of all, the most important source of evidence is your patient. And you have to start from there and put it in relationship to what you have of general knowledge and literature. Second, your clinical practice is very important also for making uh, uh, new discoveries. So if you find something, if you find something that doesn't fit, if you find that uh, you know the the trials uh, don't didn't work here and it's completely different, but just find a way to report it back. Just find a way to talk to your fellow clinicians and and find a way to report it back to research because most a lot of the patients I would say most of the patients you see are not patients that were in the trials. This is knowledge we don't have in the literature. So it should be communicated. Remember to report also when you use drugs. When you use drugs and you have something strange that didn't work, this comes from my profession, sorry, it's a little side uh, track, but this I think very important. There are channels to report things that uh, when causation fails. Yeah. But also just on that point, they call it a learning contradiction where something you expect to happen in practice doesn't happen so the patient doesn't respond to the intervention as described in the literature or through your experience, but just resting on that situation, discussing it with a colleague, really reflecting on it can be a really valuable yes. opportunity, a real valuable experience, rather than just dismissing yes. it and saying, oh, it was an outlier or there was something wrong with that patient or they just didn't fit or, but, you know, trying to understand it more oh, of course i mean uh, we know also from uh, uh, samantha who's the third editor of the book she works on uh, on scientific discoveries and she shows that most of scientific discoveries come from things you didn't expect to happen so actually outliers might be the most important things uh, happening if you want to understand and discover and push the knowledge forward but in order for this to happen you need the community so you know, these now there are also new ways probably to network with your fellow uh, colleagues, clinicians, even uh, all around the world because of the internet. But the community is very important to to discuss and to discuss, especially outliers. I would say. And the third thing is uh, always ask why and try to understand because. Uh, I, I think that there's a very all uh, types of uh, when I I say that the most important is your patient, and then there's a value in uh, any type of evidence you can have. But but don't just take things to be how they are because they come from clinical trials. 
everything is very important. Every all dots are important, but try to connect the dots and ask why. Why what is happening here? Eleanor, that's brilliant. Thank you so much. Thank you, Oliver. So we'll be talking on chapter five with Rani, complexity reductionism and the biomedical model. That's right. Looking forward to it. Thanks, Eleanor. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit www.wordsmatter-education.com for all the show notes, resources and blogs. And check out the online course in language and communication in relation to back pain. And I'll see you next time.